Hello, and welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are a faith-filled, family-focused church that's in Lakeville, Minnesota. In a moment, you'll be able to hear a sermon from one of our pastors. We hope that you enjoy and grow closer to God through these messages. And now, for a sermon from Pastor Josiah Van Ravenhorst. Amen. Well, good morning, Celebration Church. How's everybody doing today on the 4th of July weekend? Awesome. Well, thank you for being here in person. Uh, Thank you for showing up. And for everybody who's watching online, I know there's quite a few people who are out of town or with family or out. And so I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us and tuning in today. Uh, Like Pastor Lewis said, my name is Josiah. I am uh, the guest experience pastor here at Celebration. And so um, I always uh, am so excited when I get the opportunity to preach and to speak. Um, And I do feel like um, this is going to be a really uh, applicable message because about a month ago, Pastor Derek, he said, hey, Fourth of July weekend, you're going to be preaching. And he said, don't feel pressured to uh, give a message on freedom. Like, you don't have to be pigeonholed into that if you don't want to. And I was like, all right, I'm probably not going to do it. So I spent all this time preparing a sermon on the image of God. And then I came back from vacation and then a week of message prep. And Pastor Dan gave a message on the image of God. And it was the same verse that I was going to use. And he did such an incredible job. I was like, I'm not about to do that again. So let's hit the books and let's find another thing to talk about. And so when I was on vacation, I was reading through Exodus and this whole theme of freedom just kept coming up over and over and over again. I'm like, all right, Lord, I guess I'm doing a message on freedom for 4th of July weekend. And so I normally don't like to be cookie cutter or predictable or gimmicky, but I do believe this is going to be a good message uh, for everybody that God has given me something to share today. So I'm excited to preach. Um, and so as we kind of jump into today, could you stand with me as we uh, read God's word together? Exodus chapter 7, 14 through 18 is where we're going to be taking a look. It said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take your hand, in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink water, drink its water. And this is a story, uh, the 10 plagues, the freedom of the Israelites. It's a story that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, Christians and non-Christians. It's kind of a cultural reference as well. Most people have heard this story, but even for people who've been in church and heard it their entire life, it's a very easy story to misinterpret and misunderstand. And so I'm really excited to teach this. And if you've ever heard me preach before, and I always say it, but I'm more of a teacher than a preacher, I feel like... Uh, I've done what the Lord has called me to do. If you leave knowing more about the Bible and having your imagination reawakened when it comes to new perspectives and the possibilities of God's word. And so uh, that is what my goal is this morning with this message. So uh, before we dive into it, let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for the time and opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, to learn about you. And Lord, I pray that you will just continue to 
to grow us as a church, as individuals. And Lord, we just thank you for what this weekend means. We thank you for the freedom that comes with it. And we thank you, Lord, uh, that you are at the center of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 Well, you may be seated as we dive in. Um, So my wife, my wife's name is Cassie, and she grew up in the home of a children's pastor. Her mom was a children's pastor for a few years, and uh, she even created her own curriculum called Scripture Kids, where she took Bible verses and made songs, and so she would sing to her kids and to her children and, and everybody all the time. So my wife has kind of adopted a similar mentality that we can't go a day without singing a children's song in the house. Um, You say a Bible verse, you say something, and there's a song to go with it. Just about the entire Bible has been transposed into a song in our house. It's awesome. Um, But there is a song that I haven't necessarily heard sang a lot, and that is the song about Pharaoh, where he's like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, let my people go. That's right. You all know it. Okay. Uh, but if you don't know it, I will ask Pastor Ryan to put it on repeat in the kids' auditorium so that you can hear it on your drive home every day, all right? So that is a, a song that I grew up with. I've heard people are familiar with it, obviously. But there is a, a part of the verse that, as I was reading it recently, just kept jumping off the page. So if we read back in verse 16, it says, Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, huh? doesn't say that, but so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Let my people go. That's what the song says, but that they may worship me in the wilderness. And so that's the first point for this morning is that your freedom results in worship, that there was a purpose behind their freedom. They weren't just free to go wander in a desert. They were freed so that they could worship God as they needed to. And so for a little context, The Israelites, they were in Egypt for about 400 years at this point. They were surrounded by a different religion, different culture, different values. Everywhere they looked, uh, it was not what they had passed down, the traditions that they had, the the way that they would want to live their life. Um, So all of their, uh, their context, their filter was through 400 years of being in Egypt. And so their sense of identity, their religion, their culture, everything around them had been marked by 400 years of Egypt. And they were slaves, as we see in the the passage, that they were slaves. They would not be able to rest the way that their God told them to rest. They would not be able to sacrifice and worship the way their God told them that they should sacrifice and worship. And so in Exodus 8, 25 through 27, there's another conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our God, would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, as he commands us. And the, the reason Moses responds like this is because the sacrifice of, uh, of certain animals in this culture would have been horrible, that you would be uh, shaming their beliefs and their culture. And may, I don't know, maybe that was Pharaoh's point, saying, do it here so that we can kill you and be rid of you. Um, but this story really just makes me grateful for the fact that we get to worship however we need to worship the God that we want to worship. Um, That we don't have to be uh, worried about angry mobs outside of our building coming to burn it down. It's easy to take for granted the ability to worship in an 80,000 square foot building 
and not having people knock our doors down, right? I'm grateful as a pastor that I don't have a target on my back that people want to kill me to stop me from preaching the gospel. Because around the world and other countries, that's the case. That churches are being burned down, pastors are being killed, freedoms are being taken. And uh, obviously, if you've been keeping up with the news and things going on in our country, mobs are forming in certain places. There might be restricted freedoms at some point. Things are going a little bit crazy. But the one thing I'm really encouraged about is that every single time I look in Scripture, every time I evaluate the God that we worship, He is always able to communicate, to be present, and to deliver His people. Whether they're in slavery or bondage or oppression, God is there in the midst of it every single time. So as we face some things moving forward, you can be confident and know that no matter what it looks like, you are free to worship. God has freed us to worship. Whenever we have freedom, obviously it's a beautiful idea. It's something our country was built on, and it's a concept near and dear to God's heart, freedom is. But for some reason, humanity over and over and over again proves that when we have freedom, we tend to spoil it. That if you give us an inch, we're going to take a mile. That we make really bad rulers of ourselves. That when we have freedom to, to govern ourselves, we make really bad rulers. Which uh, brings me to the second point this morning, which is that your freedom still requires submission. That even though you're free, you still have to submit to something greater than yourself. It doesn't mean that you just get to go out and do whatever you want to do. Uh, that as free Americans, yes, you are free, but you still have to submit to the law, to the authority that exacts justice in our country. You don't just get to run around doing whatever you want. Freedom is not a cuter way to say anarchy. It's freedom, and it still requires submission. And so this is what's happening in the story between God and Pharaoh. So the main verse, it was a conversation from God to Pharaoh through Moses. And it kind of starts this whole uh, sequence of events where 10 different plagues come upon Egypt. And it's kind of this battle between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh, are you going to let my people go so that they can worship? No? Okay, here's another plague. That's kind of what's going on here. And we're going to, in a little bit, go through every single plague, talk about them all, and figure out, okay, what does it actually mean? But if I'm honest, before we get into that, I just want to get something off my chest. Because Every time I've read this story, I've been really frustrated. Every time I read this story, I have a really hard time reconciling how this God is the same God who died on the cross for my sins. How is this God who sent plagues and killed children and killed cattle and sent diseases and did all these horrible things to the people of Egypt, how is that even possible? It's really, really frustrating for me when I read this, this, these, these stories. So if you've ever read uh, the plague stories and been frustrated or wondered, okay, is that actually the God that I want to serve? You're not alone. But I am excited and happy to tell you that that's not exactly what's going on. Every time I read this, I feel like God is a middle school girl who's just mad that he's not getting his way, right? But he's, he, he's not a middle school girl. Like, and here's the thing. Give me frogs. Give me gnats. Give me lice. Keep the 13-year-old girls away from me. They're so judgmental. They're crazy. And if you're 13 and you're in here, you're probably lovely. But it feels like God is like this group of middle school girls saying, you can't sit at our lunch table. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But, <laughs> thank you. But I'm happy to tell you that God is not a group of middle school girls. 
He is not a lion playing with his food. He is not playing a cosmic game of stop hitting yourself with Pharaoh. Like that's not what's going on here. So from what I've studied um, and from what I've seen in scripture, God is dealing with the incorrect belief systems of Egypt and he's proving to the Israelites that he is the one true God, that there is no other God beside him. And so Egypt, it was a polytheistic uh, Country where they believed in multiple gods that when they walked outside, they saw the, the sky and they said, there must be a God for that. They see a tree, there must be a God for that. They see a river, there must be a God for that. They had upwards of 700 different gods that they were worshiping, that they submitted to, that they made offerings and sacrifices to that were holy to them. So there were all of these obscure and impersonal gods kind of dictating the world around them and they would just kind of react to see, okay, what is this God like? What can I do to please this God? And what we see is, uh, you know, a God coming and sending plagues and things on the Egyptians. This whole concept of God's being mad and causing hardship in your life was not a new concept to the Egyptians. But normally they would just have to figure out, how do I make it so this God isn't mad at me again? Like that was their goal. And so what God is doing in this story is he's proving to Pharaoh, he's proving to the Egyptians and to the Israelites, he is preparing them to receive the very first of the Ten Commandments, which is you shall not have any other gods before me. There shall be no other gods before me. He is using all these plagues one by one to dethrone and dismantle the false gods that the Egyptians would have been worshiping in that time. So he isn't sending these random plagues. These are not just creative means of torture for the Egyptians. This is a way of God to tell them, I am the true God that you've been seeking. I am the true God over every single God that you have been worshiping. Those gods have no authority, but I do. And so we're going to go through the plagues one by one and explain and show how he's doing that. So the very first plague, we read about it, the water being turned to blood. Aaron, he takes the staff, he strikes the Nile, and it turns into blood, and all of the water in Egypt turns to blood. They uh, worshipped a god called Happy, who is the god of the Nile. And so every single time there would be a flood in the Nile River, uh, it would be because the god Happy made it happen. And that's how they would have so many fertile, how much, they would have fertile soil, they would have all this vegetation because happy caused the, the Nile River to overflow. And God says, no, that's me. I am the one who has authority over the Nile River. The second plague is the plague of frogs. In Egypt, they worshiped another goddess called Heket, who was the goddess of fertility and was also related to the flooding of the Nile River. And this goddess was depicted having a human body with the head of a frog. So, they have frogs come out of the Nile River to show this God that you worship that looks like a frog. Actually, it's not a God at all. I have authority over it. That's what God is telling the Egyptians. The third plague was the plague of gnats, or some say the plague of lice. So they, they strike the dust of the ground, and gnats and lice cover all of the living creatures. And there is a God that they worship called Geb, who is the God of earth and dust. And he was at the center of the creation story for the Egyptians. And what they're saying is, you are not at the center, Geb. It is actually the God of the Israelites. And this is the first plague 
uh, that the magicians in Israel or in Egypt were not able to replicate what was going on. So every time, uh, you know, when the frogs happened, when the blood happened, magicians came forward and by their power, they were able to make the same thing happen. During this one, they went to Pharaoh and they said, this is surely the finger of God. They were not able to do it on their own. The fourth plague is the plague of flies. They had another God called Kepri who had the head of a beetle. And this word for flies is either swarm of insects or a wild beast. There's a bunch of different ways that you can translate it. But once again, God's saying, I am over all of these things that you worship. The fifth one is the, is the plague of the Egyptian livestock dying. And Moses tells Pharaoh, all of your livestock are going to die. And the Israelites, there's not going to be any of our livestock that die. And Pharaoh, he actually sends people out to say, is that true? Have any of the livestock of the Israelites died? And they came back and said, not any of them have died. They worshiped a god called, called Hather, who is a goddess of love, beauty, music, dancing, fertility, and pleasure. And she had the head of a cow, or often cow horns, like livestock. Number, well, we're only halfway through the plagues, right? But if I'm Pharaoh, I'm starting to get a little afraid because the God of the Israelites has proven his authority over the Nile River, fertility, creation, love, beauty, music, dancing, livestock, wild animals. Like this is a God who has authority over all that. And we're only halfway through. Number six, the plague of boils. Isis was the goddess of healing, magic, and protection. And the author of Exodus makes it clear that the magicians could not stand before Moses because they had boils. Meaning the God that they served, Isis, who was over magic and protection and healing, she turned on them at the authority of Yahweh. That they couldn't even stand before them because the magic that they got from her, from worshiping her, had turned on them. Number seven was the uh, plague of hail. And this is where things start getting a little unordinary, a little crazy. Um, but it says that there was hail, thunder, and fire. And there's a podcast that I've been listening to um, called the Bama Podcast, where they talk a little bit more about this specific plague, that um, this is where things got really crazy. Because you have two gods working together to cause this storm, that there would be hail, which was ice, and then there would be fire. And for the Egyptians, that would be a paradigm shift for them. How is it possible that Seket, or Sekhmet, the goddess of fire, and Newt, the goddess of the sky and the stars, are working together? And God, the real God, is saying, they're not. I am the one true God over all of these things. So they would have been seeing things completely differently. And there is a God that's at work that is completely foreign to them. They don't understand what's happening the eighth plague is the plague of locusts, and Seth was the god of storms and disorders. And it says that God brought an east wind in with the locusts, and a west wind had brought all of them back into the Nile. Not a single locust remained. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness, and Ra was one of the most powerful gods that they believed in, who was the god over the sun. And what I love about this, it says in Exodus that it was so dark that they couldn't even see each other face to face. As if God was saying, Ra isn't sleeping, he's dead. Like he's gone. He doesn't exist anymore. The light that you get from him doesn't exist. I am the one who's over that. Number 10, the death of the firstborn in the family. And this is something that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. But this plague 
is dethroning two different gods, actually three different gods, but um, I'm picking two of them because there's so much to it. But Amun was seen as the most powerful god out there in Egypt, like the supreme creator of the universe. And he was depicted having the head of a ram. And a ram is a adult male lamb. In Exodus, it says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it, their lamb, and they shall kill their lambs at twilight. So this would have been happening during a month called Nisan. And this would be during the astrological month of the god Ares, who is also symboled with the head of a ram. It would have been on the 14th day, which would have been during the full moon, which means that the most powerful god in all of Egypt would be at its peak power. And the people of Israel would slaughter a lamb representing that we do not believe in your God. Your God is dead to us and we are moving on from all of the Egyptian gods that exist. That's the thing that God is having them do in this moment. It's not a let's decorate our house with some blood on the doorpost. It is telling all of Israel, your gods are dead to us. That is what's happening here. So that God is dead. Man, God is just killing them all. The second God that we see is Pharaoh. Throughout this entire story, Pharaoh is, you know, shifting his trust to one thing after the other. And God is just saying, nope, that one you can't trust in. You can't trust in that one either. I have authority over that. And then finally, Pharaoh was seen as a God among men. He was the mediator between gods and humanity. And when God took his firstborn, he finally came to the realization that the lineage, that the deity that's supposed to come after me doesn't exist anymore. That God has taken away my ability to pass on my godliness to another. And he finally came to the end of himself and realized, okay, I have to let God's people go because he's no longer mediating between gods. He's mediating between broken promises and gods with no real authority. And so as people in Egypt, you've just spent all of this time having your gods dethroned one after another, and they've experienced some excruciating trauma and pain through all of these different plagues. But what's even worse for them is the fact that their hope has been taken. The fact that the things they put their trust in has been shaken. That everything that they're believing in is now shifted, and they have to come to terms with the fact that the God of the Israelites is the God who has authority over everything. And that is what God is doing. It is a mercy to the people of Egypt that he is doing these things for them, demonstrating and showing and giving them the opportunity to realize we have been wrong all along. That is what is at play here. And so, like I said before, your freedom still requires submission. You still have to come under the authority and the power of something or someone greater than yourself. No matter how free you are, you still have to practice submission. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you going to submit to things in your life that promise a lot but deliver nothing? Right? For the Christian and the non-Christian, how many promises does the world need to break before you realize Jesus is the only one who keeps all of them? How many promises does the world have to break to you? How many things do you have to lose trust in before you finally realize, I can trust in God? He sends 10 plagues to prove this to them. 
that there's no other gods beside him, that there will never be any other gods beside him. And still to this day, we may not call them gods anymore, but we worship them just the same. So the third point for today is that your freedom is defined by your time and your attention. Your time and your attention. So if you go to Exodus 14, 11 through 12, this is after the plagues, after the Israelites are freed, they're in the wilderness, and they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They were focusing on the wilderness, not the worship anymore. Their whole purpose of freedom was to worship. And now they're preoccupied by the wilderness. Their setting has now taken over their freedom. They're more concerned about their setting than about their freedom to worship God. And they didn't believe that the God who just sent these plagues could fulfill them, that he could sustain them and, and bring them through. Their attention was on the fact that their conveniences and their comforts in Egypt were being threatened. So it says in Exodus that they were slaves and that they had a period of really harsh slave masters. But for 400 years, if you go into it, there was actually a lot of conveniences in Egypt. They lived near a river where there was always uh, crops. They lived in a place where there were always food. They were always taken care of. Now they're in a desert by themselves. And they're realizing, okay, all the conveniences I had under Pharaoh's thumb, I want those back. Now they're worried about their own conveniences and, and they believe that God is not able to uh, sustain them. They would rather serve and give Pharaoh their time than give their time to the God that just freed them. And so I, I heard a quote that seemed applicable. It said, the Israelites forever imagined that the lands further off are still better than those upon which they already settled. He added that if they attained paradise, they would move on if they heard of a better place farther off. So whether they're slave or free, they were discontent. Whether they had abundance or were in the wilderness, they wanted the other. Nothing was able to satisfy their hearts. Nothing was able to come close to filling their desires. And even freedom wasn't enough to bring them back to God in a meaningful, lasting way. But the thing about that quote is that it's not about the Israelites. It's about the Americans. And it was said in 1774, before the term uh, the American dream was coined. It was said before we actually twisted and perverted and corrupted what was the American dream. Because I do believe in the American dream. I believe that our freedom is a beautiful gift, that we get to live uh, for the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's a beautiful thing. The fact that we get to have social mobility, that we have economic freedom, that we can work hard, achieve a lot, and be great. But the same freedom that allowed us to worship God and to pursue better lives has kind of become a religion in itself. A religion that's polytheistic, where we have multiple gods that we serve and multiple ways that we make offerings and sacrifices to them. The fact that we have a land that's divided by the worthy and the unworthy, that we have a caste system that says these people are honored and these people are untouchable and it's normally dictated by something called a bank account. And then we also have something that says uh, you're re either religious or non-religious because you're a Republican or a Democrat. Like That's the world that we live in. The modern day gods that we serve, both Christians and non-Christians, are things like comfort, entertainment, self-identity, 
variety, convenience, individuality, sex, immediate gratification. And similar to the religion of the Egyptians, we have an endless number of gods that we can serve. We have an endless number of offerings and sacrifices to give in honor of these gods. And we also have an unwillingness to place Yahweh, the one true God, at the center of our lives. And maybe it's not the fact that we all worship these things. Maybe it's not that we actually think that entertainment and convenience is going to be the thing that gives us salvation. Maybe it's not that we overvalue them, but maybe it's just the fact that we haven't valued God enough. We haven't realized that he can actually provide all of those things for us and more, even in a wilderness. We haven't given God the attention, the time that is needed. So time is something that defines our freedom. Pastor Trevor, he recommended a book to me called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, one of the most challenging books I've ever read. It's amazing. You should read it. But here's something that they said that I've never heard before. They said, leisure used to be the sign of wealth and status. Now, busyness, hurry, and an overloaded calendar is the sign of wealth, status, and success. That if you're a busy person, you're a successful person. That you're an important person. That if you have a lot of time to sit around, you're probably not that important and you should get off your butt and go do something. But we serve a God of rest. And we also serve a God who requires time because our freedom is defined by our time. What we put our time to. We each have the same amount of hours in the day. And we're all too busy. And the first thing that normally goes is our time with the Lord. And we heard a video earlier of the Kellers talking about tithe. And I feel like giving 10% tithing for a lot of Christians is a pretty easy thing to do, to trust in the Lord with your finances. But could you even imagine if the Lord said, I need you to tithe your time? Man, I doubt there'd be a lot of American Christians if that was the case. If you had to spend two and a half hours every single day reading, worshiping, and praying, and being with the Lord, it's like, for some people, you can have my money, but keep your hands off my time. I don't have enough of that to give you. And I'm speaking as the same position as you guys. This isn't me being better than anybody. I struggle with the same thing, but we need to reevaluate our freedom because freedom is when your time goes to the things that are most important to you. And if you say that God is the most important thing to you and your time isn't going to him, you either have a freedom problem or a faith problem. Something's wrong that we got to figure out. We got to reevaluate something. And even though we call ourselves free Americans, we're still slaves and servants of things that make horrible masters. We place ourselves under the authority of things that can never deliver on their promises. We know the truth of God. We've heard it in this sanctuary. Yet oftentimes we turn a blind eye. Instead of turning our eyes upon Jesus, we turn our eyes upon Netflix upon TikTok, upon Facebook, upon social media, upon everything else to keep us distracted and entertained. And again, I want us to evaluate our freedom because freedom is when distractions no longer change your focus. If you are free to look straight ahead at the Lord and not be distracted left or right by all of the things that this world is trying to throw at you, that is true freedom. But when you're trying to go one place and every single time something comes up and you go off track, that's not freedom. You've lost your freedom at that point. And so we live in a world that is going to try to present distraction after distraction after distraction. And I'm asking myself these things this morning. Am I as free as I think I am? Do I have freedom in the same way that I thought I did? Or am I still serving 
masters that are breaking their promises to me day and day again. So what does it look like to have biblical freedom? Galatians 5, chapter 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Beautiful words, but every time I read them, I'm like, what? <laughs> it is for freedom that you've been set free. It seems redundant. Paul, what are you talking about? And there's probably a whole other message that can be preached on this verse alone, but I just go to what did Jesus do to give us that freedom? What did he do? He went on the cross and he died. He died so that we could be free from sin and death. He went to the cross and he invites us to join him. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And if you're not a Christian or follower of Christ in this place, and you're thinking to yourself, this is radical and crazy, you're right. This is radical and it is crazy because it takes radical action for us to release something that has such a radical hold in our life. We have to give everything to be free from this sin and death. We have to go on a cross and die to ourselves to be free. But man, it is, it is a blessed freedom. And if you're a Christian and this message is hitting really close to home, I just wanna encourage you, do what you need to do to put things in the proper order so that you can have freedom once again. He already paid for it on the cross. Everything that you're carrying, everything that you're still in bondage with, you can find freedom at the feet of Jesus. It took 10 plagues before the Egyptians, before Pharaoh realized, okay, I have a few things I need to renounce. A few things I have to give up. Same with the Israelites. So I just want to plead with all of you, renounce your hope in the things that will not satisfy you. And I don't believe it's going to happen because it's already happened on the cross, but God had to send plagues to free us from it. Man, don't wait because your freedom is found already. And there's a, there's a quote that I heard that I had to send to a friend just because I was wrestling with it so much. It's by A.W. Tozer. And he says, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. There is no greater freedom that you can find in this world than the freedom that can be found in Christ and found through the cross. And that's the last point for today is that the cross is the ultimate symbol of freedom. Because the cross requires your worship. The cross requires your submission. The cross requires your time. It requires your attention. It requires every single part of you that you can give. You have to come to the end of yourself and sacrifice it on the cross to realize I have everything that I need here. 
I have everything that I've ever hoped for here. I have everything that I could ever dream of here, that Jesus has already given it all to me. Your freedom is found on the cross. And in order to fully understand and embrace the cross, you have to dethrone the things in your life that are sitting in the wrong spot. And for the most of my time as a Christian, I assumed that um, in the story of the Pharaoh, of, of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and the Israelites, I always assumed I was the Israelite. That there was the devil who would be Pharaoh who was enslaving me and I needed God to come and free me. But I think for most Christians, we're actually closer to Pharaoh where we actually have a hard heart and we're not willing to let go of the things that God's calling us to relinquish. That we're still worshiping things that can't deliver on their promise. That we still have a blind eye to God even though he has done so much for us. Man. And today we are celebrating freedom in our nation. My prayer is also that this weekend that you'll be celebrating spiritual freedom that you find at the cross. That you'll be uh, celebrating not just freedom in our nation, but freedom from sin and death. That you can live completely free. That you can worship as you want, submitting to God, living a life that exemplifies Christ. And if you aren't in that place today, that you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, that if you haven't given your soul to Him, if you haven't placed your life in his hands. I just want to encourage you. Think about that because the cross, it's not a creative means of torture. It's not a way that God used just to destroy someone. It wasn't just to cause pain. It wasn't just to inflict something on us, onto Jesus. It was to prove to us that we've been worshiping ourselves. We've been worshiping the wrong thing, that it is a grace to us. I hope that you can find at the foot of the cross today, this week, that you can realize the cross is a place of peace, that the cross is a place of of grace, a place where you can lay your burdens down, and it's a place of freedom. So as we go out this weekend, as we celebrate the freedom that we should be celebrating and be excited about, man, let's not forget the freedom that allows us to worship the one true God. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray church. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together, to worship you, to lift you up, to hear from you, Lord. I pray that your spirit will just begin to fall in this place, that every person who's heard this message, heard your words, Lord, that you will begin to change their heart, soften their heart as you soften Pharaoh's heart because his heart was hard, Lord. And if there is a hard heart in this place, Jesus, would you just begin to to open it up to you? to show them that you are a loving, grace-filled God, that you want the best for them, that you want to put yourself in the proper place in their life so that they can experience the most amazing things, even if they're in a wilderness, even if they're in a difficult season, Lord, for the Christian, for the believer, and Lord, for the person who is far off from you, who does not know you, Lord, I pray for freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you learned something from this message and are able to apply it to your life. If you gave your life to Jesus for the first time or for the 10th time, please reach out to us on Facebook or email us at info at celebrationchurch.net. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week.